this is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we are joined by L. Grover Fricks to discuss how to navigate the dangers of presentism and primitivism as we start a series on the forgotten women of the Bible. That's right. We are looking at the everyday lives of women in the Bible today, um, and we need to lay some groundwork before we dig into those stories, because if we don't know what's culturally normative, none of the significant divergences in the text will stand out to us, right? Uh, uh, so we're going to go ahead. I'm here for the groundwork. A whole episode, of, whenever we, whenever you do, whenever you can dedicate a whole episode to groundwork, I know that like this is groundwork worth doing. So I'm excited today. I don't even know. There's no document in front of me. There's no notes. I'm just excited to learn. I'm excited too. Uh, so before we even get going, we have to acknowledge um, some biases that we carry with us just because we're human beings um, and we're all doing our best. So the first one that Brent mentioned already is presentism. So presentism is the fallacy where we unknowingly supplant whatever truths or experiences we have undergone in our cultural settings onto someone else's cultural settings. So we might presume that traditional women's work um, might have been devalued in my culture despite being the backbone of society. And so it's always been that way. Um, And so we then can take that presumption into stories of women in the text. But when we look at the research um, and science and primary literature from that time, uh, we find that, of course, industrialized wage-based labor um, is more of a new invention. And it was kind of at that point that women's work started being undervalued. Um, So we have to find our facts and lay this foundational work, like Marty is saying, because otherwise, how are we supposed to know? If something's true now, it feels like, oh, that was probably true back then, right? Oh, that was, there's a lot in there. And like, not just about women, like this is, this would be good for like all biblical hermeneutics when we're trying to think about historical context. It's probably something we overlook and race past just in favor of contextual tidbits and cool rabbinical stories. And we're bringing all of this stuff with us as we, yeah, that's good. I think, I think this is maybe the kind of thing where it's, like, uh, and, and you can break out of this a little bit if you're really intentional about it, but it's just kind of a function of age where you, as you get older, you see technologies progress, you see lifestyles change and you realize like, Oh, if that much change has happened in just my lifetime, think about how much has happened before me and over the course of whatever number of years. And it's just one of those hard learned experiential sort of lessons. Well, that brings us to our second danger, Brent, because we don't want to wheel over to the other side of the path and fall into the ditch over there. Uh, And that one is primitivism, which is the opposite uh, from presentism. Primitivism is where you presume I live in the height of civilization now. It's been a long time since that desk old scroll was written and back then i'm sure things were absolutely bonkers deeply uncivilized everything's changed and back then everything was very primitive thus primitivism so this can come out as a positive bias like if you have people who are like back then men knew how to be men or whatever or a negative bias of uh <laughs> back then violence was just a regular part of life and it wasn't that big of a deal or whatever Um, So we want to try to be aware of both of those potentialities um, and look at the data. So I encourage everyone 
to not just read works by theologians or Bible scholars, but also Mm -hmm. read stuff by archaeologists and anthropologists and sociologists because they're guided by the rules of science and the raw facts. Um, You know, of course, they bring their own biases, too, but they can you can do some really great work. when you're dealing with the raw, the raw data. I would totally second that and the importance of reading, like even right now, a good friend sent a couple books, uh, Sapiens and Homo Do by Yuval Harari and been reading those. They're not going to make my recommended books list, but just (laughs) listening to somebody discuss something from a world I'm not typically occupying, even when it comes to world history, the development of humankind, like that's just super healthy to open my mind and recognize I start to tell my, like I think Foreman talks about the lullaby effect. Like that can happen in a lot of different places, even just contextual assumptions. I start to put myself to sleep with the things I assume about history and how it's developed. And I'm guilty of that as well. Both. I'm guilty of both. Shoot. Well, if you know, that's half the battle, <laughs> right? That's right. So, Marty, you don't want me to put those books in the show notes? I mean, uh, I mean, well, now that you say it, we almost kind of like have to. The promise is in the minute, but it's like, I would say no. I would say no. But, you heard I mean, it whatever. here first. Start a Twitter flame war. <laughs> Marty stands versus Harari stands. It's all over. I mean, you said it, Marty. Oh, you boy. said it. <laughs> I sure did. <laughs> Okay, I have a last uh, term to define for. I hope this it starts series. with the letter P. It sure does. You oh, know. thank goodness! <laughs> Would not be a good speaker if it did not all connect to a singular letter. Okay, so this word we're all familiar with, most likely, um, but I'm going to use it in a different context than we might typically um, be used to in our current, you know, pop culture and political world. So regularly out there in wider America anyway. If you say the patriarchy, everybody's hackles go up uh, and it refers to the systemic and institutional forces that contribute to factors like, but not limited to, wage inequality, domestic violence, etc. In anthropology, saying something that Saying that something is patriarchal is super different. Uh, So I'm going to use that term in this series, and I'm dumping a couple of ideas together, which revolve around the centrality of the house of the patriarch. So when I say the patriarchal culture of the Bible... I don't mean the modern systemic and institutional forces. I mean the system mm-hmm. in which um, a patriarch has a calling, a frame, a mission, a way of being in the world. The family conducts themselves under the yoke of that mission. The chosen child, often the firstborn, the Bechor, right, is trained to be the patriarch in waiting. Women leave their original house and marry into that new family and live in the insula. So I'm referring to that whole system whenever I say patriarchal. So just want to be clear on what I'm talking about uh, uh, in the context of anthropology in the Bible. Super helpful. Uh, again, because I can't imagine how many times back in our study of the First Testament, session one, session two, I would refer to patriarchy and I knew that there was like a whole load of dissonance with what I was attempting to articulate and refer to and say and what everybody else could potentially hear. And that just articulated it super well. Great. You know, put the sound back back then. Save yourself some emails. So if I could, yeah, absolutely. So if I could review, we have to be aware of 
presentism, Mm -hmm. which is bringing my current experience back into the scriptures. We have to avoid primitivism, which is assuming that their experience was so far devolved from mine, so barbaric, so primitive. Right. And then we have to we have to be aware of what we're referring to and define terms when we talk about patriarchy in a historical context. Correct. You got it. Ding, ding, ding. Gold star. Splendid. Okay. Anything you got, Brent? Confusion, questions, comments, points? Uh, Well, one other thing I was thinking about was just like the technology aspect and like even being aware like, oh, it's only more recently that we've had the sorts of technologies to make clothing in the way that we do, but then not actually like turning that around and, and thinking about the implications of like, oh, so to have a shirt 2000 years ago was actually a huge deal because we didn't have that technology and because that had to be made by hand and just the, the time difference and the life given to that product versus now where you can just go pick up, you know, a package of 10 shirts if you want. And it, it, you know, it, it was moments of somebody's life just pulling that off of a machine and shoving it into a bag. Um, so, you know, even understanding the technology differences and technology advances that we have and, and like we've talked so many times about, like, we don't know how they accomplished this. We don't know how they built this. We don't know how they moved this, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked right, about that kind right. of stuff all the time. And so, yeah, there it's is easy, Brent, the aliens built the pyramids. Yeah, yeah sure. Accept that. Well, yeah. Questions answered. So it's like, well, we know they didn't have cranes. So how do they do it? And it's like, well, human power of some kind and we don't know exactly what the method was but we know that there was there was so much greater human cost to all of the things that they did so just just realizing like oh to have a shirt at all meant that somebody spent i mean i don't even know how long it would take days hours I mean, well we'll talk about weeks it. whatever you're, like gathering all the materials right everything target. is just totally different so yeah just even realizing like oh i know that they didn't have uh, I know that they, they didn't have toilets the way that we do, but then how did they actually do it? Like, what was the, what was the time cost of that and, and everything else? So just making that connection, mm-hmm. making the application between realizing that things were a little bit different and then what, what did that actually mean for daily life? Right. Uh, I don't have bronze age toilets on my outline here, but I'll make sure to gather that evidence for you for some other time. <laughs> Uh, But you're right on track. Those are the kind of questions we're going to start to think about. And again, if we don't do uh, if we don't do this foundational work, that means that when something is different in the text, it doesn't stand out to us as different. We're just like, oh, yeah, sure. Those are the elements of the story. So we're going to go through some basic facts first about life uh, in the Bronze Age, Levant, also Iron Age. um, And then we're going to jump to specifically what women were up to in the world. Sound good? Can I totally ask you a total PS question? Sure. I'm going to ask this on the podcast. I meant to ask you this a million other times and I haven't yet because I heard it on your own, your other podcast. Okay. You, you're using a term Levant. Is that yes. a more, uh, is that a better term to be using today in the whole Israel, Palestine, Middle East, like everything's, is that, is that what you're referring to when you say the Levant and is that a better term to be using today? So the Levant uh, is 
a technical term. Thank you for the question. Uh, because it's a very specific area. So it's from the bottom of Turkey down to the top of Egypt. And so that, of course, oh, includes beautiful. now Syria and Lebanon and Israel yep. and Palestine. And so it's helpful because those that is a culture that's grouped together that's different from yep. Egypt and it's different from Turkey. And then also it does avoid like, well, if we call it the Middle East, that's kind yes. of <laughs> putting Correct. right this people group at the center of the world right so yep. it it's helpful and central asia is too broad because that's you know uzbekistan yep. is in there so yeah that's the levant if you <clears throat> want to do googling using the word levant l-e-v-a-n-t is a helpful way to get good resources man l is fixing all my problems today i believe we touched <laughs> on that in episode 240 as well when we talked about uh archaeology of joshua oh yeah yeah, yeah yep yep all right here we go. Brass knuckles down to the brass knuckles. I don't know why I said that. A brass tacks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Hopefully brass tacks. Strong A energy coming through right now, L. Every day. Every day we bring it. Okay. So where are both women and men living and eating? First off, there a lot of them are in cities. Megiddo, Hatzor, Ketzer. Those cities have an average population like 1,700 um, folks in those spaces. They've got villages that surround the city. Sometimes those are called daughters in the text. Um, and then there's the smaller circular settlements for the more um, nomadic folks. Um, Y'all already know we're big fans of terraced farming in the Levant because there's a lack of arable land. There's four different types of soils in Israel, and only one of them is suitable for agriculture. Um, and that's the colluvial soil that's nutrient-rich and washes down the hills. Um, so question, applying this data fact that we just learned to the story, how do you think this might affect our view of the conquest, gentlemen? I'm I'm stuck on colluvial soil, so I can't remember how big the conversation was. Yeah, I, I was like four four soils. Okay, I feel like I've heard this before. Okay, you, you lost us both we in the have soil. No idea. <laughs> Last two in the soil. All right. Well, I'll just tell you that is okay. That's why I'm here. Um, so if you have four different types of soil and only one of them is good for growing food. That means that one way of thinking about the conquest uh, is that it's essential that we kick absolutely everybody out, not because people groups are gross and bad and, you know, should all be murdered because they're inherently evil, but because we have to have systematic control of the land in order to have enough arable land just to survive. Does that make sense? There's only, yeah, there's only a certain amount of land that's even up for farming. You don't get to just go somewhere else and start something new. That has to be yours if you're going to have agricultural produce at all. Precisely. Precisely. Yep. Um, which at least helps me when thinking about the myriad cloud of thoughts and questions around the conquest. Doesn't solve everything, yep. but it's helpful. Uh, when we're talking about food, sorry to all the paleo folks out there, the liver king. Uh, oh, no, don't do it, L. Don't do it. <laughs> bursting the bubble. Uh, diet back then, 75% grains and legumes, 25% vegetables and fruits, and you get one liter of new wine a day, which, you know, that's Ooh, great. Okay. Low wow. alcohol, but... 
you know, you do what you can. Uh, there's no way you're eating your animals because they're a massive financial investment. So they're a once a year, maybe celebratory splurge for a holiday like Passover. Or if you're dying from drought, they're a last resort. Um, they didn't have the extra arable land lying around to grow fodder to feed their animals. Right. So like in Levon's story, we tend to look down on Levon for not like taking care of um, Eliezer's camels and stuff, but he lets them have fodder. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, they're living off the scrub of the land. Um, and you're not going to put all those extra nutrients and energy into sustaining this living thing that you can use as a draft animal or for textiles um, and then just eat it in one meal for your one insula. That's not a very great financial move. Um, so trying out this practice, we kind of shot and missed earlier, but how do you think this might affect our imagining of the tone of peace offerings and praise offerings? Well, you're giving God the very, like the very best, the luxury, the, there's something when you're giving animals, anyway, that's where my brain went. I went to animals right? and if, I mean, you're giving God like the celebratory yeah. Meal, the high value. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard you teach that. Um, but it's an extra like we don't just have this on Sundays. And I'm having pot roast with God and the priests. This is the once a year big celebration. Um, and for me, that changes the tone of imagining sacrifices because, um, you know, we tend to have a lot of angst and contrition built around our atonement um, thoughts and concepts, um, about, you know, feeling bad in the moment, which is not to say all of that is not helpful. Um, however, I don't think that's necessarily the tone in the sacrificial system. So I'm thinking of, and maybe I'm, you, you may just be like, Marty, stop talking. Cause you're getting ahead of me, but I I'm thinking of like Eli's son's, um, or the the maybe I'm getting yep. that story mixed up, but the nope. priest sons that are taking the meat out of the out of the pot, and we're like, oh yeah, they're stealing meat, which is bad. But like, if they're stealing meat for them, like I, now this is becoming like a huge story of like over like luxurious greed, right? And so that's Absolutely. an example of I'm bringing presentism with mm. me into that. I'm assuming that meat is how I experience meat. Right. Not understanding what it's like in the context of the story. Right. Exactly. Yay. <laughs> and then I'm I'm thinking of something like a grain offering being like, oh, that's that was their that was their I mean a tithe isn't necessarily the right thing, but like like we think of tithe as like, oh, we have some money and a portion of that is given. And for them it's like, oh, we have grain and a portion of that is given, and that's just their typical thing. And then the animal is a once a year like big right. deal kind of thing. Whereas a grain offering would be a more like everyday kind of, I mean, not every literal day, but just a more common offering. Yes, precisely. And also the patriarchs slaughter animals, um, of course, pre mosaic law, but that's their mode of summoning God nearly is they use a slaughtered offering. So, um, some kind of animal, but again, mm -hmm. celebratory vibe, um, very interesting, at least to me, about the way that we think about restitution and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so another thing is that dairy is a luxury because it's needed for the animals to consume. So like Brent was saying about 
t-shirts in a bag. We live in a society where we're so divorced from our factory-based food production. Um, but milk, if you think about it for two seconds, it's only produced in the spring um, when female animals give birth, right? So the animals need that milk to survive and you need those animals to survive so you can have clothing and insulation for your tents and houses and blankets and transportation. And so your fields will get plowed. Um, so if you're very wealthy, you can steal a little bit to make cheese and ghee. Um, but hardly anybody in the text gets milk. Um, so what story or is affected by, or might be turned a little bit in the light by that, uh, new framework, a land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds like a totally different kind of place to live. Right. Good work, Brent. Exactly. A plus. So the word flowing there, as Marty knows, won't test him on uh, live recording, but (laughs) Athan is our word for flowing continually. River-based flow is the idea all year long. So the idea that the land is flowing with milk and honey from the very beginning, God's talking about supernaturally providing abundance for his people, right? It's not just like, oh, uh, you know, fat is in milk and that's good and it's sweet. And so God's, you know, being extra nice. But no, he's promising abundant riches that they don't even need. Milk is for royalty and who certainly has time for honey. And then he's promising miraculous things by flowing all year. Um, honey is also only made at a particular time of year, by the way. So, uh again, turns my vision of the character of God to know this perhaps obscure fact about dairy consumption. I see. Very good. Okay, great. So now zooming in on the women here. So what are women in this time doing? Bring all your biases and um, assumptions with you. It's okay. We all have them. Uh Uh-oh. You're going to ask us to answer that question? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Ugh. what are they up to? <laughs> I'm hoping for a soundbite that we can blow They're up. cooking and cleaning, L. There you go. Uh, Thanks. I, oh, man. Okay, I'm going to jump in here first uh, or second. Um, uh, I, I'm going to assume that they're carrying the load of the communal work. Like they are, they're not just in the home doing home, but they're also in the town. Like I, I'm probably being influenced by the Eshekhael here, the Proverbs 31 mm-hmm. depiction of yeah. who a woman is and what she does. And I'm assuming this isn't some grand, but this describes the work that they're probably engaging in on a regular basis. They're, they're probably the ones doing like, doing the work. I don't mean like the physical labor, but I do mean <laughs> that. I mean like they're the ones doing the work. I mean, Proverbs 31 is a great place to start. We're going to refer to it uh, throughout this episode, but you guys are correct. Um, you know, there's an example of bringing our biases and they're not always wrong. Uh, <laughs> but what are the women doing? First off, they're having kids, right? Um, neither of you pinpointed that precisely, but, uh, Along with working so hard, doing all the things um, that we're going to talk about, they're also having babies that whole time. There's accounts of pregnant women going out to collect firewood, going into labor, chilling out their whatever remote site, giving birth by herself, and then bringing the baby back with the firewood. Can't forget the firewood when she's all done. Um, 
So, you know, there's a lot to do. And this was certainly uh, a big part of it. Um, the average nuclear family we kind of miss because we focus on these characters like Yaakov, like Jacob, who has 12 uh, sons, you know, not counting his daughters, right? Um, but the average family is only two to four kids. Um, and that's because a, half of your births die in the first five years, not counting miscarriages. And then maternal mortality is also through the roof. So if you think about it, that means as I Marty taught me when I was a college student, you have a huge chance of dying. Your baby only has 50-50. So who wants to participate in that? So when we look at Leah and Rachel and the back and forth fight they have in Genesis about having kids, um, it's really easy to read that with a pretty, you know, misogynist overlay of like, ugh, silly women fighting all the time, trying to get more attention from their husband. Um, and certainly they're not, you know, modeling really healthy relationship dynamics. But it's also a story about incredible faith that they keep wanting to try to have more kids, one baby after another, after another, after another, is a huge faith step for them that they're trusting God, undergoing this incredibly risky endeavor, and God honors them for it. So question, is the two to four average kids, two to four average kids or two to four average family size? Two to four kids. Two to four kids. Is that is that based on uh, one wife? Yes. Okay. Yes. So Jacob does have, you know, four times the chances uh, with that average. So that helps his numbers right. a little bit. But um, what, like, is that normal for him to have? I mean, not he he had two wives and two. He had uh, Bilha and Zilpa as well as Leon and Rachel. Um, and I think in the story, it's supposed to be a point about God's goodness to this family. Again, um, that we just kind of miss because we're like, I guess everybody had a million kids back then, mm. which is an example right. of potentially primitivism, primitivism, depending on which which subculture you're a part of. Mm. Yep. And, and all throughout that story, I kept seeing the danger of presentism right around the door because we then carry our, how dare you think that women and like make this relationship between women and having babies because we're bringing our current cultural assumptions right. into a different context. So both dangers just right in the midst of that kind of a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to take maybe an unexpected turn in the Paymont waters off of this point. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever noticed, but there is a distinct lack of condemnation around sex workers in Torah. Um, so the only prohibition that I'm aware of, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure a million people will point it out to me, but in Deuteronomy, it says, do not make your daughter a sex worker, which is like, yeah, that sounds like a good policy. <laughs> However, you can imagine a society tolerating that industry and its use more. If a wife is like, every time we have sex, I have, there's a possibility that I could die. Right. That's a big deal. Um, and the Talmud says that if a man is overcome by an evil inclination, he should just remember to wear all black and cover himself in soot when he goes to visit a sex worker so that the name of God is not profaned. So not saying that that's my personal uh, opinion or moral stance. However, uh, I think that we should be aware of 
again, what kind of baggage we bring to the text when we run into someone who is um, in that position like Tamar in the story. Well, and just to repeat, to save you at least a few emails, just to make this even more clear, your point was what we do when our culture clashes with a historical culture. Elle's point was not an endorsement or lack thereof of any particular nope. behavior. It was simply being aware of the different world of the scripture versus the world that we live in today and how the baggage that we, the assumptions we make, the baggage we have, right. the moral, ethical paradigm that we come with is not exactly a direct overlay with the one of the Talmud or of Genesis or any of those kind of things. Right, exactly. Because like Ruvain gets in really big trouble for um, sleeping with his stepmom, basically. But Yehuda doesn't really face any consequences um, for visiting someone on his sheep shearing trip, who turns out to be his daughter, right? Yep. And when you read that story, I mean, the one thing we have talked about with Bema is what are the problems here? What are the questions that jump to mind? And that's probably not a question we like to give voice to very often, but that's all, every time I've read that story, I'm like, well, nobody's stepping in here to be like, hey, dude, don't go see the shrine prostitute. Like, everybody's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll just go give the go. Yeah. yeah. So that's <laughs> absolutely there. As I read that story, there's no way that question is not front of my mind as I read that story. So I think that's very helpful. Well, and I, th- I think most people have always been bothered by, like, Sarah offering Hagar to Abraham. It's like, what are you doing? Like, that's crazy. But... I mean, maybe, and like we've, we talk about that story so much. Like, I think we realize to some extent what's going on there, but, but maybe that's more normal than, than we give it credit for. Right. I think it presents a high view of Dina that her brothers are like, say, you can't make our sister Mm -hmm. a sex worker. Uh Right. Uh It's not that that's so awful, gross and demeaning and horrible. They're calling their father to value her more highly Uh, uh yes absolutely excellent okay so back to our main less less murky waters (laughs) oh good Uh, they're raising their kids (laughs) Woo! phew made it through we can stop sweating um they're nursing kids which as a nursing mom at the moment i 100 percent view as a major part of work and labor um and they're doing that for upwards of three years for their nutrition so Um, A lot of people out there have read The Red Tent, and they think about the laws around Nida, um, uh, menstruation, and how women are kicked out all the time. But when you are having – so if you're going to have four kids and you're losing half of them, that means you're going to have eight kids, um, and you're going to be nursing them for – you know, upward of three years, that's spread out for a long time. So you're not very often being removed from the community for a particular time. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And we can formulate all of our different thoughts about why and how helpful it is or unhelpful that um, that's part of women's experience. But it was relatively rare because um, nursing is its own form of birth control. So putting that out there. And a and a part of what I'm hearing you talk about too, L, um, like I feel like some of, a lot of what you're talking about, like you just you hold an awareness of it without judgment. Like I think we get so used to having to see something and judge it. Like right. we learn some new piece of context and we have to judge its its goodness or its badness, its worth or its value. When when it comes to like understanding stories, good biblical hermeneutics, just understanding that it is without having to like complete the judgment loop. 
right. is a part of the process too. Which is, you know, a much less stressful way to live. <laughs> I don't think God expects us to get everything right all the time. And so right. if we extend that same grace to other people and ourselves for getting things wrong, I think we can experience a lot more grace and joy in our life. Which I'm a fan of. Uh, last thing in this particular section, uh, according to my research, big uh, Dorothy Ann fan from Magic School Bus over here, um, <laughs> grandmothers are the storytellers <laughs> in these communities. I have a two-year-old. Magic School Bus is on. Seatbelts, everyone! Please let this be a normal field trip with a friend. Grandmothers are the storytellers. So um, that's not, you know, comprehensive. It's not like they're the ones who will be reading in synagogues or anything. But when people are gathering around the fire at dinner time, apparently grandmothers are the ones in the Levant who tell stories. And so I like the idea, of course, with all of my biases, that although maybe the text was written um, by the literate population, which is more likely to be men, of course, it's possible that we have midrash because of the faithfulness and storytelling of the grandmothers. Ooh, I'm th- I'm I'm catching big Timothy vibes right? there too. Right. Or Brent Billings. I'm thinking of our Christmas episodes, and I think of the nativity story and the part that Ruth plays. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that older woman in the village there that's always telling the stories to the children. Well, and I'm making some hamatasha. And I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Bema 297 with Kat Armas on Abolita Faith. Oh, Ooh. snap. We got I love some good stuff there. Okay. You have the numbers memorized, Brent. I don't have the numbers <laughs> memorized. I I do for okay. some episodes, but I have our spreadsheet in front of me. I see. <laughs> Multitasking. Well, now I know if you miss a question. It's because you're looking at something else. Oh, yeah, that's all, <laughs> almost down. certainly true. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that is certainly a big part of their work. However, both household and professional work is another thing that they are um, doing in the biblical world. So women are going to be grinding their grains into flour for at least two hours a day. Um It's a long time. In archaeology, we can tell when a society has become agrarian because all of a sudden women's skeletons have arthritis in Uh their uh um, knuckles and elbows and shoulders from grinding. It's hard work. Two hours with no podcast to listen to, no music to put on. Like, Well, I'm, I'm going to circle back around to that because that would be really depressing. But you're just being primitivist, Brent. <laughs> <laughs> Quit it. Yeah, Brent. Doing your best with the information you have. Well, I'm certain they didn't have podcasts, but I'm, I'm open to whatever <laughs> other forms of entertainment they had. <laughs> We've actually found the first podcast. No. Okay. Um, baking. They're baking all that bread. Big Sarah energy, right? So we've got mm-hmm. one one oven for up to 10 women in the community okay. in your insula. So, you know, again, making these technologies is a lot of work. Um, women are actually involved in their own tool production. Um, we see that even in the Bible in Nehemiah 3, women are helping to build the walls of Jerusalem. Um, so they're setting up these big stones to be able to bake things effectively. Um, and that's a lot of work and resources. And so you've got 10 women up to that anyway on one oven. Uh, they're 
also the beer brewers, which is fun because opposite to our culture, women are the ones formulating the IPAs and men are working on the Merlots. Um, hmm. Obviously not IPAs, but uh, that was one of their tasks again, because it's a grain. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They're going to be up to the drying of their legumes, fruits and herbs. Um, that means that they're also the ones driving the medical work, not just midwifery, because if you're the one working with plants of all kinds all the time, that makes sense because you know their properties. They are doing their textile production again, like Brent said, but they're doing it on big shared community looms. Um, we see this in Kings that women are making skilled women, it says, are making stuff on temple looms communal looms Hmm. um and again that's a big tool that they had to make themselves Uh, i don't know if you've ever seen a full-size loom but they're pretty enormous so it makes sense that you can't stuff one into your house which doesn't have any windows um so it's an outdoor thing that's happening uh they're business women. We know that because we have seal impressions on pottery and on um, the amphora, which carry goods. And in the Bible, they also sell their own textiles, right? Proverbs 31, she's going around mm-hmm. hustling. Mm-hmm. They're the funerary specialists, right? Uh, mourners are called the skilled women. Um, they show up in different places. You hire people to help run your funeral, and that includes people who professionally wail. Uh, a lot of Twitter could be put in that category. Jokes landed really well. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciated it. it. That was Great. clever. That was Great. Clever. Like Sorry, it. I was I was writing a note down. <laughs> he was in a spreadsheet, <laughs> putting notes about an IPA, which was also a clever. That was a clever. I like that, that too. That, that was. was good. If like you that. think of Levantian beer as an IPA, that is presentism. I think. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Um, no India pale ale, Brent. Thank you for the correction. I'm so glad you're here. Okay. Last thing in this section is like Marty said at the beginning, they're also involved in seasonal work. So you have these periods of intense hard work that you need the whole household for. So it's by need, very inclusive. You need all hands on deck. You have limited time, for instance, between harvest and the latter rains. So you have to have everyone out harvesting, just like we see in the Scroll of Root. We need everybody at the threshing floor. We need everyone involved in wine and oil production. And you need everyone to participate in terrace construction, which, if your life was impacted like mine was by Marty's teaching on boundary lines, knowing that everyone in the community is participating participating in the formation of those boundary lines, carrying those rocks to make the plots of land that don't get moved. Mm. That's a nice, nice little connection. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, so what stands out to y'all about these tasks? There's a lot of them. I would say what I, yeah, I would say what I said earlier. It's a, it's the work they're doing the work. Um, not that there's not work that the men are engaging in, but they're doing the all the daily work the work that has to be done and they're doing it together they're not doing it as individuals they're doing it in community those are some of my initial thoughts right they're difficult tasks they're diverse tasks but like you just said they are communal tasks um i know a lot of women um in my circles um for the past 10 years uh, a lot of women who are at home struggle busing on their own not because it's 
bad to be at home, but because the aloneness of home is hard. Um, you know, finding women's groups that you can go to once a week to try to get in touch with other people who are choosing to stay at home. Um, but here, women found all of these spaces, all of the these different tasks. Anytime they're baking, they're together. Anytime they're uh, breaking down their grains, they're also doing that together. Um, they brewed their beer together. They're doing their loom time together. Um, and that's between patriarchal houses. It's not just, um, you know, hanging out with the other women in your extended family. It's these different communities, different women um, coming together and having social time basically all day, which certainly helps with child rearing and the ability to get all this stuff done when you have toddlers running around. Mm. Amen. Different, a different model that uh, might be helpful for our time as well. Uh, the last thing I want to highlight for this episode is that all of that communal activity and the fact that they leave their father's house and come into the new patriarchal household means, drum roll, that they are the natural sociopolitical experts when it comes to negotiating difficulties between these different great houses. So next week, we're going to look at all the ways that shows up in the text, which we might not be familiar with, um, unless we know our text really well, or different stories might pop to mind. But if you are coming from somebody else's house, i.e. communal house, right, the house of Esau, for instance, and you're leaving that house and coming to be with the house of Jacob. And then as part of your daily tasks, you're spending time with the women um, from the other great houses that are in your region as you bake bread and everything. You know what's going on in those houses. You know how the marriages are. You know how the kids are. You know all of this stuff. And so these men who don't spend as much time because they're out like Yehuda by themselves shaving their sheep down. They're out delivering the the animals in the spring. They're out sowing and plowing. Um, those are more small group activities and these big group activities. And it's certainly not with other um, houses because, again, they're on their own terrace. They're on their own um, plot of land. Uh, and so we'll see these women next next week um, who utilize this particular resource of knowledge and skill and negotiation in order to help the well-being of their whole house. Um, so I'm excited. Makes sense. And from what I've learned about Jewish tradition, it happens just so much throughout the text, especially of the First Testament. Like there's a story of the Exodus full, full of women that always seem to be present in the story, making the difference. Like, and, and when you describe women the way you have, Elle, with this communal network, engaging in all the work together every day, having those relationships, having the information, their their version of the social media world, like it makes sense that they would be the ones that would actually have more street wisdom, if that's right. the right. Yeah, like that, absolutely. That makes all sense. Yeah. Shifra and Pua, the midwives going before Pero, 
know from talking to servants in the house of Pero, ah, yes. um, you know, what really makes him mad? What's an annoying thing that, you know, ticks him off and makes him not listen to you anymore? Yep. Uh, what's his favorite X, Y, Z? So, yep, they're equipped with all of that information. And there is little stories throughout the text that highlight that. Love it. So, yeah, TLDR, women are doing a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's really hard. Uh, their work is not devalued, and they're in a critical part of the social flourishing of their families and the households and uh, the whole society in the land. Beautiful. Well said. Any uh, concluding comments, Mr. Spreadsheet Scroller? <laughs> no, I don't think so. That sounds like a pretty good start uh, for the series, for the anthology anthology that's right that was your word i've been told it was back in the the tohu vavohu episode yes okay well that does it uh for this week al how can people get a hold of you if they want to if they want to chat about some of these ideas or point out things that they they noticed like based on or, or even check there like hey did i understand you correctly like does this story illustrate this idea What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, all of those questions are great and fine. I appreciate any opportunity to clarify what I was saying. I had somebody ask me recently, you know, um, I'm I'm a stay-at-home mom, and I think that's great. Yeah, 100%. Uh, me too. <laughs> I work from home. Um uh, and I had somebody else ask me whether I thought that all marriage was um, – was invalid biblically and the the answer to that is also no so i am thankful for the emails i get i am not reticent uh and i apologize if anything i said isn't clear but you can find me at elkriverfricks at gmail.com um which is different than our text in us email address which is text in us at gmail.com um in case you're crossing crossing lines there of which which inbox to go to those are the correct ones crossing the streams i like it okay yeah. uh and then um well marty where are you going to be at you're going to be in the middle of your book tour when this when this Woo-hoo! starts so um for marty just just find him in the physical world go to bayamontesubship.com slash news and see where marty's going to be and track him down and meet him yeah find the literal me guys that's what i love like Come find the me, me. It might only be five or ten minutes that we get to whatever chat and shake hands, but that is so much more fun than an email. Like, come find me, not my inbox. That'll be awesome. Do that. Yes, I love it. And then uh, I'm just floating around various places, looking at spreadsheets and uh, keeping an eye on things in the background. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, so much more than that. I've been kidding. Your work is integral, obviously. <laughs> well, I do I do publish the actual episodes, so nobody would be hearing any of this if I if I wasn't That's doing right. my work. But um, yeah. Anyway, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll be back next week with more from L. Your work is as integral as the work of a woman in the Levant, Brent. (laughs) I was thinking the same, but I wasn't going to make the joke on the air.
<laughs> I didn't until we were all done. Uh, I hope you guys are still recording. <laughs> I waited. If you were still recording, I'm putting that at the end. Well, I'm stopping my recording now. I just found a ladybug on my pop filter. So one moment. <laughs> <laughs>